Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Book Riot Podcast. It's weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Recording on Thursday, April 7th, 2022. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky, coming to you from bookriot.com. Uh, in this little header, news and update situations, um, actually, our, our biggest update is more of a topic, so we're gonna, I'm going to push that down. I didn't tell Rebecca this here just for a minute, but it is that time of year. Moms, Dads, and Grads recommendation show coming up. Show, send us your recommendation requests. The Moms, Dads, and Grads uh, triptych there is just a shell corporation for an excuse for you to send in recommendation requests. Yes. It can be for you. It could be for someone else who's not a mom, dad, or grad. But... We know that people are buying books, um, hopefully something other than, oh, the places you'll go for your grads. <laughs> um, but, you know, and maybe maybe something uh, to that your mom's not getting her third copy of Atlas of the Heart um, from Brene Brown, <laughs> or your dad's not getting his fourth copy of The Bomber Mafia by Malcolm Gladwell, just to play into, you know, tropes that yeah. are durable. And we can, we can broaden for moms and dads and grads and everyone else that uh, exists in those spaces, but also your own recommendation request. As always, if you've listened to the show for a while, you know, we kind of like those uh, differently. We like them as well, but just differently yes. than the mom's dad's request. Podcast at bookriot.com. Remember, that's a first emailed, first served um, basis there. So those will be open, oh, I don't know, Rebecca, a few weeks, something like that. Yes. Yeah. I think our first show of May will be answering those i have to look mm. at the exact dates but yes we'll leave them open for a couple of weeks we'll update you with specifics next week generally don't get it done by mother's day <laughs> but maybe we can try maybe we can. i have to see if we have a sales commitment related yeah to well that's 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 also true uh oh also coming up next week um our insiders that book ride insiders that uh are the tier where they vote for some of the podcast content Voted on a book club conversation, and then we picked which book club to do. We're going to do The Candy House by Jennifer Egan, uh, which came out two days ago, sitting on my coffee table downstairs. Um, I'm getting into it very soon. I think, just based on Buzz alone, Rebecca, it's a good choice. I think based on Buzz alone, I would have retroactively chosen Sea of Tranquility, and we're going to get to this in a minute. For It's related to some yes. other stories, but I feel like... There's buzz around Mandel right now, and Candy House is supposed to be great, and I'm really looking forward to it. But I think if we were really had our finger on the pulse of the zeitgeist, we'd be doing the Mandel. But, yeah. I, I think you're right. Um, I'm about a third of the way through the Candy House. I'm mm. really enjoying it. I have a lot of notes about things that we can discuss. I think it will be a very fruitful conversation. It's going to be interesting to talk about. Um, I want to talk about Sea of Tranquility with you at some point. Did Perhaps you read some it? Ideas about- Are you done? Not yet. No, oh. no, I just bought that. I mean, I'm not that fast. I bought them both yeah, on Tuesday. Yeah. Um, I was at my local Barnes & Noble, you know, picking up the hardcovers. And the woman was like, oh, these both came out today. And I was like, I know. That's why I'm here. Hello. <laughs> uh, I saw Lib talking about it. And then a couple other people on the bookish internet talked about 4-5, April 5th, as being it's a one, big of, one. one of the more significant beats of new release days in a while. <laughs> I mean, these two books by themselves... 
are, I mean, as you've heard about on this show, just for us, is a major event, but there's other stuff going on yes. um, as well. So maybe we'll, as, as Frontlist Foyer uh, gets cleared of coats and shoes and jackets here, uh, we on can the, talk about that over the yeah, next Yeah, I have, I have some ideas about where, when and where we might talk about the Sea of Tranquility also. That's provocative. I don't know what that means. But uh, anyway, <laughs> let's do our first sponsor break and come back and talk about some other stuff. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Taming Seven is an epic and unforgettable love story in the international best-selling and TikTok phenomenon, The Boys of Tom and Series from Chloe Walsh. So Tommen's cheekiest lad, Jared Gibsey Gibson, has always been a comedian, but inside he is haunted by events of the past and he uses humor to cope, hiding his true self from the world. Then you have Claire Biggs, who is the epitome of sunshine. She's always loved Gibsey, her brother's friend and her favorite neighbor. She also has always seen a side to him that no one else seems to notice, and she becomes determined to tame her wild-at-heart childhood best friend. So The Boys of Tommen series is an internationally best-selling YA romance series that has taken TikTok by storm. It's perfect for readers looking for new adult slash crossover romance, dual point of views, friends to lovers, marathon worthy TikTok books, and angsty tear jerkers. Taming Seven is published today and it's the fifth book in the series. So make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Young Readers. So this book I'm about to tell you about is giving five worlds meets spirited away realness. It's about a girl fighting her way back home after getting trapped in the spirit world. It follows Anzu, who's moved to a new town during Oban, a time for families to remember and celebrate their ancestors. And ever since her Abachan died, Oban has lost its magic. She doesn't feel much like celebrating anymore. So while avoiding holiday festivities, Anzu spots a stray dog down the street, a dog that seems to be staring right at her. So when she chases it, she slips and falls down a bridge, losing consciousness. And when she awakes, she's in the Shinto underworld known as Yomi. The stray dog, she finds out, is actually the gatekeeper of Yomi, and he warns her to return to the human realm before it's too late. Like I said, Miyazaki realness, um, I'm super excited for this. So make sure to pick up Anzu in the Realm of Darkness by Mai K. Nguyen. And thanks again to Penguin Young Readers for sponsoring this episode. Uh, announcement, point of order. So for those of you who've been listening along through our Gumroad experience, you may have guessed that we've been looking at some other ways to do premium content. And after searching the hills and dales and valleys, we came up with a really unique solution, Rebecca. It's got a little company <laughs> called Patreon. Ever heard of it? Yeah, it turns out things that work well for other people also look like they'll work well for us. <laughs> uh, all kidding aside, it makes sense. The feature list really lined up a lot with the feedback we got from folks around getting podcast uh, content outside of just a normal RSS feed open free to all podcasts, which is if people want to listen to their podcast player and they want to make it dead simple. So starting next week, there will, there will be a Patreon's feed. You can go as, as you listen to this, you can go to patreon.com slash book podcast or link in the show notes as always, which is in the podcast you're listening to or bookriot.com slash listen. And you can see the various tiers there. Um, basically there's a couple things. One is early and ad free episodes. They may or may not be more lightly edited. As you know, these aren't very much edited, but there's a little before and after sometimes I might throw in there. Um, you might hear us clapping to uh, unite the timelines and some of the, the little, um, I don't know. You might see the, uh, the 
boom mic in the shot, as, <laughs> as we say, a little bit. And then there's going to be premium content. And the first premium content thing, things will only get in the feed, will be our summer draft, which will hit that Patreon feed on 419, which is April 19th, coming up quick. I've started my list. Rebecca, have you? Oh, yes. I have quite a spreadsheet at this point. Cause- would you... Would you like to tell me vague and unhelpful things about how to beat you in the draft? <laughs> not at all. Not at all. You did. Especially, vague and unhelpful. There it was. Yeah. I, there, that was both completely un- <laughs> vague and deeply unhelpful. Uh, I haven't decided what my... I haven't done any vetting yet. I, I think about what my like top 10 and then my backups are going to be. And I feel very challenged by this round of it, largely because April 5th is such a big day and our... Yeah. Um, well, no, April is in our winter. That's our draft. last. You can't know no, no right. Candy House, no Sea of Tranquility. There's a lot in May that looks really good. There's a, a and then there's a lot of stuff coming out through the summer. That now that we know that the voting is often swung by, I really just wanted this one particular title, yeah. and I'm voting for whichever of y'all <laughs> picks the t- that one book. The the guessing game of what those are going to be, but I haven't really gotten in there yet. I've just been doing the the catalog mm-hmm. deep dive, downloading a bunch of galleys in that process. So there's, there's good stuff coming down the pike. Um, I guess to broadly tell our folks about the Patreon, in addition to like the early access. So our these regular episodes that you usually get on Mondays, if you subscribe to the Patreon, you'll get them on Fridays. And as Jeff was saying, they'll also be ad free and then bonus stuff we think will come out a couple of times a month. And that might be all kinds of things, things that you've heard us do on in the regular feed that we're moving to the Patreon behind-the-scenes kind of content, I think this might be a fun place to talk about Sea of Tranquility at some mm. point. I wasn't being as cagey as maybe you thought I was. <laughs> I, was like, I, mean, I didn't nice. even know what the possible cages <laughs> like were. Just, like, that, that would make sense not, if I thought that about it for <laughs> Yeah. And then there's um, one level of it also where you could get priority for your recommendation requests. You could have voting power on future types of content that we do. So um, lots of great options there. And as we get into this and we you know get to talk with y'all who join the Patreon and um, have a sense of what's working and what else you would like, we're excited to keep, you know, we like to experiment with stuff. And this is yeah. a really nice sandbox to have for us. For those of you who don't want to subscribe um to or, or you know sign up for a membership there or can't for whatever reason totally understand oh, you yeah. will be getting the regular shows as always these these regular weekly shows aren't going anywhere and that's not even to say that you know additional week you know fee drops in the feed for mm-hmm. a special event or something else won't happen at all ever um, but the extra special sauce goes into the Patreon. Uh, for a little while. So we're going to try it for a while and see how it goes and learn as we go. Um, Rebecca's done a good job getting it all set up and we've been thinking about it for a while. And we really do want feedback from both subscribers and non-subscribers. Like if you do subscribe what you like about it over time and then what you don't. And then if you were on the fence, I guess it'd be interesting to know like what, how we could kick you over the fence or uh-huh, nudge you or good. boost you mm-hmm. over the fence. It reminds me of that scene in Notting Hill. Where Hugh Grant tries to, to to leap a fence and falls and says "Oopsie Daisy." So anything that we can do, um, oh, not that's wrong. Not anything. We're not going to do anything. But you know, tip, tips and tweaks and trials um, be very helpful here. So we're really looking forward to to playing around there. Um, all kinds of stuff to come. All right. Um, hmm, 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 hmm. Well, should we stay on Mandel for a minute? Yeah, let's stay. There's a couple of levels of excitement we get about a story and i think the highest level of it may not be importance but if you or i text each other about a story (laughs) that that's something 
right? And it doesn't it's, mean it's like huge, but we're like, whoa. And mm-hmm. this was what, Rebecca? What, what did I text you? I texted you, right? For this, Yes, one? you texted okay. me that the team from HBO Max that produced Station Eleven is reuniting for adaptations of Emily St. John Mandel's two novels after that, The Glass Hotel and the very freshly released Sea of Tranquility. Mm-hmm. And I think I texted, like you texted me, an expletive of excitement, <laughs> which on the Patreon, I would just be able to say because we get to be uncensored. That's a great point. Over there. And I think I texted back like 15 exclamation points, something like mm. that, perhaps. Yeah, when it, a thing has risen to the level of we are both invested in it when, when we're texting about it. And yeah. I am very excited about that. I mean, I know you are too. And along with much of the rest of the world that experienced the magic. That was Station Eleven. Have you, you read have, The Glass Hotel? I was just going to ask you about that. I think I did. <laughs> That's a stunning endorsement, Rebecca. Uh, the most interesting to me thing to me here is I don't recall a kind of like durable relationship between a creative team for a TV show and a single novelist. Right? This is Patrick Somoville as the show was a showrunner for Station Eleven. Will be the showrunner mm-hmm. for these other things. Sounds like Mandel's being brought more closely, maybe actually into the writer's room. Yes. Or within Station Eleven, it sounds like she was guardian angel, conciliary, you know, as they, as they um, worked on it. But for those of you who listened to us talk about Station Eleven or read it and seen the show yourself, there were meaningful departures, which Mandel was publicly supportive of. But I think we all know that public support for something like that may or may not represent mm. true feeling. I, I always wonder, like, if someone says, yeah, it was great, and I'm really happy. It's like, were you happy with the check? You're not trying to make a mess so you can get another deal. <laughs> you know, what kind of squawking is actually worth it to you at this point? Well, this is clearly uh, no no higher approval for what Somerville and his team did over there. I, I can't think of, I don't know. I mean, this is not something that I know a lot about. Yeah. Like, I, maybe there are, there aren't that many novelists who have had multiple books adapted was like the John Grisham train in the 90s, which we talked about on an Adaptation Nation. Was that all the same thing? Was Grisham mm-hmm. in the writer's room? TV's a little bit different. It's also a, it's a meaningful commitment, too, on Somerville, who has a lot of juice after Station 11 yeah. to say, I'm putting my chips on the Mandel table without wandering, which I think is fascinating. So I think that bodes well for good quality content here uh, for us and, and for the world. Glass Hotel if I remember right, is not spec fic, which Sea of Tranquility is and Station mm-hmm. Eleven mm-hmm. also is. So it's not like getting three Stephen King books where you kind of know what you're... Well, even Stephen King can throw you a, a commercial fic. Anyway, I, I find that the most interesting thing. If anyone knows of an example of here was an, a creative team that did worked with a novelist on you know multiple projects over time. I, I can't think of one, especially I, the lit fic writer, Rebecca. I can't. Yeah, I can't either. I was just thinking... How surprised would I be if, like, Barry Jenkins came out and said that he was going to do adaptations of other Colson oh, Whitehead things beyond yeah. the Underground Railroad? And would he be a good fit for those? Because those genres move around so much, but also Barry Jenkins can like, do whatever he wants. Um, I did not read The Glass Hotel. I, I just didn't get to it. And I am going to read Sea of Tranquility, which um, I think when we were talking about it, you said, you know, you're hearing it's really something special. That's also what I'm hearing. And I want to be on that train. But my overarching feeling about this really is that I will follow Patrick Somerville wherever he wants to go with TV right now. Um, I was a huge fan of The Leftovers, which he worked on. I think Station Eleven's adaptation took some of the best pieces of the heart of the book Mm -hmm. and spun them out in a really smart way that made sense for television and that elevated 
core pieces of the story. Um, certainly, I don't expect everybody's experience to be that, but my I felt such a significant impact from the adaptation, um, much more so than from having read the book. And at the, I had this moment of like, if I weren't already hearing that Sea of Tranquility is great, I would feel fine about just not knowing the source text and going with whatever version of these Patrick Somerville oh. wants to show me. <laughs> yeah, fascinating point. Um, I never caught up with the leftovers, and I don't even know how closely it hewed to the parada. Um, not very. All. After, mm. especially after the first half of the first season, it really took some departures and went in all kinds of directions. So that seems maybe a Somervillian tactic is mm -hmm. to take a, an interesting, uh, fertile source text and then zhuzh it. Or uh, zhuzh it up is not wrong because that suggests that the, there's some the pieces that are changes are boring underneath, but like adapt it, change it, translate it into the screen. I was thinking about this in terms of this, like Station Eleven is not a straight adaptation. Like adaptation, I think is a little bit different. Is it a translation into the or mm. what do we what do we what word do we use when something makes material changes to the underlying text? And could mm -hmm. would a verb distinction matter? For example, like something that's pretty faithful. Um, I'm trying to think of something. Well, yeah, the one that I think about often is the 2005 Keira Knightley Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. It leaves some stuff out. But it's not changing, like, who knows who and who marries who, which, which Station Eleven kind of does. Like, is that kind <laughs> yeah, of a big of a deal? It feels like a transformation more mm. than, to me, more than a, just adapting or a translation. Where in, in translation, you are trying to, you know, like, in, from one language to the next, find the That's best word, point. but be as faithful to yep. the story as possible. And I, I think what Somerville and the crew that did The Leftovers and then what he did with station 11 was really transformative and i've been thinking about that a lot in context of watching the pachinko adaptation mm. transform i'm not sure <laughs> i haven't started in the yet middle... you, you've watched oh. tell me tell me more. i've yeah. watched i've watched the first three the mm. biggest questions that i had it's gorgeous um the biggest questions that i had coming out of the book were what how are they going to do the timelines here yeah. because that's a what 500 page book the time moves up a couple years, like every 15 pages. You move from 1915 to 1989 over the course of those 500, but you see the characters in a lot of stops along the way. And I was really curious about how they were going to do the elapsing of time. And they started the frame with there's a 1915 timeline and a 1989 timeline that like weave back and forth between each other right now. And I assume... Mm that what's going to happen is the 1989 one will sort of stay as the piece of the frame and then the past is going to start catching up to it. Mm -hmm. They've made some changes to like details of the story or particularities of characters relationships to smooth out some of the things. I think I mean there's so much plot in that 500 pages of book that they're going to have to leave out a lot of particular incidents from the book but they're hitting so far all of the big emotional notes all of the main characters that you it would expect to see it's i think it's really wonderful and the most interesting thing is the the title sequence mm. like the like, i need you to watch this because the opening title sequence is that sha la 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 live oh, for today whoa. interesting right yeah it's like upbeat and they're in a pachinko parlor and there's like neon lights and flashing and things dinging and the cast are all dancing around and it's so out of step with the tone of the book <laughs> and the story of the show that I was like what is happening here huh 
Yeah. I'm waiting to see like if if it's something revealed about that connection, but I have some, I have some thoughts about it, but it's Mm. so, it's fascinating. It was a fascinating choice. (laughs) Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Um, between you, some other folks I know, my brother, I'm now doing Severance, so I'm going to have to catch up yes. with that first before I get... Speaking of weird title sequences, uh-huh. like Adam Scott's coming out of Adam Scott's nose. I don't care for that myself. That's not <laughs> how I like to roll uh, with my title sequences. Anyway, long story short, a fascinating partnership um, and commitment that suggests a lot of confidence, interest, and creative juices flowing. You know, not to... not what. Not to foreshadow too much, we're talking about leftovers. We're really free associating here, but mm-hmm. there is a se- Parada has a sequel to Election coming out this summer. That's yes. a high on my draft board. I have to say, I don't mm-hmm. have. It's not a top heavy class for me like we've had in some years, but there's a lot yeah. of interesting choices. I like you of having a hard time even figuring out what my short list of the people's choices are. I, I don't have a good sense of it. I don't even, I don't think that's one. I mean, I'll tip my hand there. I don't think, is there, is there a cadre of people that's like, boy, this 30 year later election follow up. Like, I think it's a cool idea for Tracy Flick as like an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope there's an adaptation of that, that Reese plays her yes, again yes. later, but it's so hard to think there's two, it, it kind of reminds me of the candy house a little bit. It's related to the goon squad. We were talking with a coworker about, um, he'd never read Goon Squad, thought it sounded interesting with Candy House coming out. Should I read? Should, you know, that the, the worst of all reading um, verbs. Um, <laughs> yeah. Should I read Goon Squad before? I think it's an unreasonable expectation that you do, right? If that's the writerly or publishingly, um, you know, if that's embedded in it. We read Goon Squad. I think we have a mental model of it. But if it requires knowing specific plot elements from Good Squad, we may as well not have read it, right, Rebecca? So that's a, that's yes. a tough one as well. Yeah, it is. The jacket of Goon Squad, the jacket copy refers to, or the jacket copy of Candy House refers to it as a sibling of the Goon Squad and also specifically says, like, readers of the Goon Squad will recognize some things. People uh-huh. who didn't read it will still be amazed and exhilarated. And, like, I'm next week when we do the book club on this, I will have some thoughts about how florid the wording of the jacket copy Exhilarated? Is. When was the last time you were exhilarated by a book, Rebecca? Is that too personal? Uh, <laughs> yeah, probably. It's, I, I don't know. E.B. White really did it for me. Oh! <laughs> no, I am teasing. The gentleness of E.B. White. <laughs> I don't know if E.B. White ever exhilarated anybody, but he seems like a nice guy. Um, yeah, I don't know that I've ever been exhilarated by a, a book. I got to jump off cliffs for that stuff, man. I was going to um, say, but, I think that's a serotonin or a dopamine yeah, uh, rush that think, is beyond the, the, the purview of a book to provide. Yeah, I think sibling is a nice way to talk about books that try to do these things. And at the like a third of the way through the candy house, I'm not having any trouble following it it's the same sort of interconnected stories where a character from one story appears Mm. in the next story so you got to be paying it like i've got a little graph going in the back of the book of who the people are um that you wrote or that you can provide yeah no i'm like drawing a little flow chart of like that's a fail not on your if you need that (laughs) well i don't need that i think if i didn't have to talk about it on a podcast i would just be like soaking up the flow of it but i'm trying to make sure you know that i'm i'm squaring everything okay and I don't think I'm missing out on anything. Um, I was talking to our friend Josh Christie about it, and 
he said that he thinks it's equivalent. He also was like, you don't need to reread Goon Squad, but he was comparing it to like, he had seen and read every Marvel comic ever and seen all the movies oh. before I started my Marvel marathon. He's like, it's kind of like when I watch Marvel stuff, I pick up on all the Easter eggs, but you can watch the Marvel stuff and still enjoy the main things that are happening. And I think that's probably the case is you can pick up Candy House having never read Goon Squad or having read it a decade ago and remembering almost nothing of it, which is the situation I'm in, and be just fine. And maybe if you still remembered a lot of Goon Squad or you had just reread it, you would have some little bonus nuggets there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, I guess, yeah, I, the... The leftovers was Somerville and Lindelhoff, right? And then Lindelhoff yes. did one of our other favorite recent adaptations, which is Watchmen. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a high confidence. We used to do this um, format on the site for adaptation news called the Confidence Index, like how confident you were going to be mm-hmm. that this is a good thing that's coming out of the source material. I'm not sure I could draft higher um, or, or assign a higher confidence index rating than the fruit of the Lindelhoff adaptation tree right now. They seem to have their heads screwed on right about how to be yes. spiritually faithful, but um, creative and exciting and trying to use the medium to push the source material forward a little bit. I'm going to think, I'm gonna have to get out my thesaurus because I think translation <laughs> is, yeah, right, that's the highest level of faithfulness. I think your point is well taken there, but we use it when we, when someone's translating someone's book, they're trying to hew as close to the thing as they can um and using the language yeah, I, adaptation I, is go ahead oh i liked what you just said about spiritually mm-hmm. faithful i think that captures it yeah and then adaptation is crossing mediums i think almost like translation crossing means so maybe you're trying to be faithful as you move something from a book to a show but i think then there's another verb past adaptation which is maybe interpretation extension mm-hmm. you know uh i don't know that's that captures if a book is trying to just build on something or put it into the, the form. Um, interesting. Uh, let's see. Where do we want to go? Is anything related to that for right now? I guess everything else is more sort of standard book news. Your, your, your note here was really funny. We probably have to say something about the Amazon unique success. And I, I don't think you meant that entirely snarkily. I no. think it sounds to me it was more like we have the union success we should mention it because we've talked, Amazon's a big player. We've talked about union stuff over time, but maybe if I'm interpreting you right, it's like, it's hard to know what to say about it here. Yes, that's exactly what I meant. Mm-hmm. Like we should acknowledge, because we've talked about failed unionization efforts at Amazon warehouses. So we, I think it's good to follow up and note that there was a new effort there and that it was successful, um, led by an Amazon worker named Christian Smalls in the um, New York City's uh, Fulfillment Center. And there's a huge piece in the Times that you can read if you want all of the details by Jody Cantor and Karen Weiss. Um, But interesting to see this happen. I think interesting to see it happen in New York, which does have a really long and fascinating history Mm. around unionization. I guess it makes sense in many ways that this was successful in New York in historical context and not successful in like Alabama, uh, which is one of the other places that we've seen it attempted. But I think it was a real open question of whether anyone would be successful. Um, Amazon seems to fight this very effectively in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. They are maybe resist it uh, is a 
uh, more neutral word, but I don't feel particularly inclined to be neutral <laughs> about how Amazon behaves here. But interesting to see it done. Uh, there's a, a lot of follow up, I think, and mostly open questions of what happens now, what changes um, what how does this impact Amazon? Will we see this in any public facing conversation coming out of Amazon? Like, well, what will the public experience of this be? Um, as people who yeah. watch Amazon, or if you're an Amazon customer, then I don't know. Over time, does this change the consumer experience? Hopefully, it has positive impact on the worker experience. But yeah, mm-hmm. there's not there's not that much to say. I, I don't. I guess the only other is really building on a couple of threads you're you're tugging at. There is one is one union in one part of New York mm-hmm. doesn't matter, right? It matters for those people. It's not going to matter for Amazon's bottom line. I think, is this a domino or is this an outlier or what? Right. Um, and if it's not indicative of future meaningful unionization efforts to come, then there isn't much for us to say. I think if it is, if in five years, we're like, yeah, that really got the ball rolling, um, showed other Amazon workers in other jurisdictions, established a precedent, whatever, mm-hmm. that Amazon now has a significant union um, I don't know, influence on its business practice, especially its labor costs, uh, annual fulfillment logistics, what, if anything, does that mean for us, the capital us of being in the book consumer world? Yeah. Um, do prices go up? Does the, does, the, does the 22% discount you're used to getting on a good selling front list title go to 14%? Does prime go up? Do things take a little bit longer? And then what are the effects of that? Does that make other Amazon competing bookstores more competitive? Your bookshops of the world's Barnes and Nobles, you know, whatever else it might be. I think the other thing that's interesting is if there is a significant union presence in the Amazon workforce, does that take one of the moral arrows out of the indie bookstore quiver? Well, I think it certainly complicates it and not for the least because there are also efforts among independent booksellers mm-hmm. to unionize that we've seen over the last year. Uh, and they so, have not been met with what you would say open arms, Rebecca. Shin, as far as <laughs> no, they have not been met with nearly the excitement that Amazon workers unionizing against Amazon <laughs> is met with by independent booksellers. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Interesting how that works. Yeah. It's a little not in my own backyardness about unions, yep. I think. Uh, right. And Amazon is so much bigger that right. the impact of this on reading culture or on book purchasing is bigger, I think, just by definition of their positions in the industry than the impact of unionization among independent booksellers, mm-hmm. except that unionization tends to cost companies more. Um, they tend yeah. to have to you know, provide benefits or make changes to workplaces that they've not made in the past because of the bottom line. And many of the things that the folks who are trying to unionize in independent bookstores are asking for are those same kinds of things, you know, insurance, workplace safety, reasonable mm-hmm. working hours or not, you know, trying to fight burnout, those kinds of things. And those sorts of expenses on the very thin margins that independent bookstores operate on could be existential threats to independent mm-hmm. bookstores um, in a way that this is not likely any kind of existential threat to Amazon. Right. Yeah, I think if you are a meaningful shareholder in Amazon, you know, probably the the base rate outcome would be that Amazon's margins shrink because they have to spend mm-hmm. more on labor. 
I guess, good. I mean, I'm in favor of unions if people want them, but it's never that simple, right, for people right. working in, in specific places. I think over the long term, it probably won't matter to Amazon's relative market position. Um, does it make Joe and Jane and other customer or prospective customer on the fence customer of Amazon feel a little bit better about patronizing Amazon, knowing that it's a union shop, for lack of a better term? Mm. I don't know that people pay that much attention really beyond us. Um, yeah. So hard to know. It's it's one, It's been one of those talking points in the anti-Amazon waters for a while is what I'm saying, is that they're, they're anti-union, blah, blah, blah. Well, they may still be anti-union, but if they have in, unions anyway, it doesn't matter too much. That, that kind of goes away. And the other thing that's interesting too is that Amazon actually pays pretty well on the whole, like the, the hourly stuff. And the working conditions are tough and they have some strange things about – surveillance and other things that I hope the unions, if they're so inclined, do get the concessions they want about that stuff. But on the whole, Amazon's such a big employer and it's such a worker's market right now. And I think maybe we also saw this in Starbucks too. That's the other thing on my head mm -hmm. that Starbucks is unionizing some of their shops, Starbucks, not themselves, but Starbucks workers are unionizing in local localities. And I wonder if both of these things are these unionizations efforts are benefiting from whatever is in the water about our Americans' relationship to work right yes. now. Yes. Like, is the same campaign in New York different four years ago? Boy, I sure think so, Rebecca. I think this COVID, inflation, all the other things about being miserable for two years and people <laughs> like, you know what? I can, can I can at least vote for my union, my local thing. I, I do feel like that plus that plussed up the union's ability to muster support for, let's stand up and, and gather and collectivize a little bit so that we have a little more control over how our lives are put together. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. And it's not an accident that the opening paragraph of uh, Cantor and Weiss's piece from the mm. Times cites that um, in the first days of the pandemic, Christian Smalls planned a walkout over safety conditions at the Fulfillment Center in New York City because of concerns about COVID safety or the lack yeah. thereof, and that that was the seed from which this movement uh, towards unionization in that particular Fulfillment Center grew. I think, I mean, obviously, we can't A-B test the universe, so no. we won't know for sure, but... I, I feel like we could be pretty confident that these pieces are all connected and, and at least the conversation in the greater culture about reassessing our relationship mm -hmm. to work and what we expect, how people expect to be treated at work um, and sort of the baseline levels of safety and care that workers who are classified as essential or frontline should be able to reasonably expect from their employers if they're asked to to be working in a risky situation like a pandemic um, leads to conversations like this. Just to go back to what you were saying about whether it questioning whether this makes like Jane and Jane and Jim Doe feel better mm -hmm. about shopping at Amazon. Like I think it's easy to forget in publishing because I forget and you reminded me recently mm -hmm. that most Amazon customers really like Amazon. <laughs> they do. That, like the Q rating and which I am loath to admit this, you mm -hmm. know, like the, the Amazon Q rating is high. People perceive this as a convenience, as a source of, you know, less expensive goods. They don't have to pay shipping often. The things get there very quickly. It's all in all like very easy. And the way that we talk about Amazon inside this industry as a threat both to you know, as a potential threat to both like reading and literary culture, but also as a threat to the industry in terms of pricing and distribution and all of those pieces is really an outlier. And I mm. like I, I don't think I remind myself of that 
often enough, but most people are already just fine with what they're getting from Amazon. And I suspect that the ones who aren't are not going to be swung back to Amazon by something like a few of the fulfillment centers now are unionized. They've probably, they're probably still in that place of deep investment in whatever local shops they can support or other retailers that they feel other, you know, big retailers that they feel better about their practices, like, you know, even in my own idiosyncratic use case of trying to really minimize the presence of Amazon in my life, this feels like, okay, this doesn't make a difference in mm-hmm. how I would how I would think about my relationship to it. I think that's well said, and it, it unlocks this nagging feeling I had about this, which it may, why it may weaken the moral case over time if there's a bunch mm-hmm. of union stuff that happens on Amazon against it. Most people aren't persuaded by the moral case anyway. So the the most likely or potentially the most powerful element would be that prime prices go up, shipping yes. time slow, and the customer sat stuff that feeds into that high Q rating is eroded significantly. That that was the, that would be the the way to weaken Amazon is because theoretically there are things that will happen that Amazon didn't want to happen because of this, mm-hmm. right? Else they wouldn't be doing the right. kind of stuff to be resistant, quote unquote, to having a union, are those things significant enough that people are like, "Eh, Amazon just ain't what it used to be, whether or not they know it has to do with increased labor costs or something else like that. I think that maybe is the more tectonic, slow moving, but then like tectonic plates themselves, ultimately the most powerful over time, if it really goes in that direction. So, okay, we, we had a... We had a lot to say about not having much to say there, it turns out, about Amazon <laughs> Welcome to podcasting. Efforts. Yeah, that's right. Uh, let's do another sponsor break and get to a couple more stories. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at 
everyday anxieties and low threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to WW Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. Um, I guess while we're on Amazon retailers, nothing, something or nothing, I guess. <laughs> Book uh, Barnes & Noble announced today a revamp of their audiobook experience. I hate it when companies do this, uh, which includes, which seems to me to be mostly putting some kind of face on now that there's a membership program that's competitive price-wise with Amazon. It is nice. You know, the other nice thing about it is that it unifies in the Nook app the your eBooks and audiobooks, which mm. stupidly in Kindle, it's yeah. not as easy to do. You have to have your Audible app, your Kindle app. I don't like that. One of the things I like about doing most of my audiobook buying through Apple right now, just because I can check out and it's on all the devices and blah, 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 but it all exists in one app there. I think it makes it feature, has it achieves feature parity with Audible. So maybe the, the Barnes & Noble loyalists, um, the way to keep them involved. I'm not sure if there's anything else to say. I put this in late. I don't know if you had a chance to look at this at all, but that, I, I gave I you saw- the, the chestnut of it. Yeah, I saw, I think one of our colleagues, maybe it was Kelly Jensen, Ah. dropped something like this into Slack this morning and was like, did we know Barnes & Noble was doing this? Um, I did not. I'm firmly in the nothing camp. My first (laughs) really ungenerous response to when you were talking just now is, are there Barnes & Noble loyalists? Like, is anybody devoted to the Barnes & Noble audiobook experience already? Well, why did you go to Barnes & Noble today? And I'm serious. Why'd you go on Tuesday to Barnes & Noble? Because I wanted to pick up the hardcovers of those books, and Barnes and Noble is closer to my house than the next independent bookstore. There's store. no Audible store you can go to. <laughs> yeah, I think I guess with audiobooks, mm-hmm. now I'm wishing we had ever seen a pie chart of like market share of audiobooks because I don't think that I've seen that. But if if we had to guess right now, would you not guess that Barnes and Noble's share of the whole audiobook listening is very small? Don't quote me on this, but I believe I saw in one of these like background quotes quotes in Publishers Weekly about the audiobook mm. market that Audible, and I don't remember if this is pre or post Libro FM or some other things people are doing. So at one point, Audible was 90% of audiobooks. <laughs> and if you told me today it was the same, I would believe you. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I would absolutely believe you. Audible is incredibly dominant with audiobooks. I think Libro has done a great job getting out there. And I I think you can get audiobooks through Libby, through your public library as well, or through one you of can. those apps. Um, I uh, Well, let me put it this way. In 10 years of doing this, I have not heard anyone talk about listening to an audiobook they got from Barnes & Noble. It's <laughs> a great point. I think, so we saw James Don. In that piece, or saw we read James bought James Dot talking that piece where we we really were fixated on like them rearranging their stores in the three thirty TikTok high school crowd or or junior mm-hmm. high crowd. I think we mentioned that, but there was another piece in there about really wanting to invest in the digital reading experience. Like they thought they had some inroads they could make there. Um, so this maybe is, is a fruit of that particular tree. I, I don't know. I mean, people go into the Barnes and Noble store. Maybe they pick up a Nook app. You know, they're having people. You know, you might as well pick it up. Like, it's kind of a... Audiobooks are a commodity. This was my big takeaway for you, Rebecca. It's like, audiobooks are a commodity. Mm-hmm. You get the same product from multiple vendors. You don't even really have a convenience factor. That's why I kind of baited you into that Barnes & Noble, because I assumed it was because you could go get one right then, where yep. to go to your independent bookstore, you didn't know if they have it, or is it across town, or, mm-hmm. you know, you have to pay full price. Not that you're that kind of buyer. I might be sometimes. Depends on the day. With audiobooks, I have my phone, and Barnes & Noble 
Kobo, Apple, Google, and Audible are all sort of equally accessible to me. Um, the only friction is which one do I have an account with and yeah. do I auto log into and then I can buy in the app, right? Those are the three friction points. And Apple, because my credit card's there, I have multiple devices, it's pretty much usually cost competitive unless I'm using a credit, which do not please do not let myself get started. I'm talking to both you and me here. <laughs> We're not going down that road today. We're not going down that road. It's like it, the differentiation is very tough. Um, but on the other hand, meaning that you can be feature competitive by not really doing anything, which is what Barnes & Noble has done here. So, <laughs> Right. I, I mean, maybe they pick up some people who we do know that not everybody is listening to audiobooks so maybe That's they right. pick up some folks who have That's the right. nook app mm-hmm. and they don't even have to get a separate app to try out a barnes and noble audiobook you can just do the whole thing as you were saying through the one which is that is a nice convenience i think that all of it the is. other places it's like books live one place and audio content lives somewhere else is extremely annoying and like we're better than this we're better than that we're better than the membership model i don't know why we're doing this still i i thought this is getting worse okay i told ourselves but should we do you want to talk about ebook pricing too oh my god but like barnes and noble you don't have you didn't have to do this just price them 14.99 for all now that would maybe be something if barnes and noble rolled out and they were like everybody else does this monthly credit model that locks you into a thing and that business is annoying so hello and welcome to barnes and noble audiobooks where you can get your audiobook for 14.99 also it's inside your nook app i like i'd be like oh maybe that's something i might try this out i'm annoyed with the credit system i don't know yeah i don't it's close that would be closer to something Mm -hmm. i think they might pick up some folks that have not tried audio before. I don't know that you're converting anybody because other alternatives to Audible do exist. Good ones exist and are thriving. Libro is, I think, the best example yeah. of that. But there's also audiobooks.com and a few others mm-hmm. that we know of. And so like, if you want to listen to audiobooks and you don't like the Audible experience for some reason or you don't want to be in the Amazon ecosystem, you've got options. Or like you, you could be in Apple iBooks. Uh, this is not compelling as a reason to switch, but it might be a, a, a nice entry, lower friction entry point for somebody who hasn't tried audiobooks yet. Yeah. I don't know. It, the frustrating thing to me, this is reify, reifying a status quo of audiobook <laughs> membership that I hate. <laughs> I agree. It adds nothing and makes things worse by keeping them the same. I don't know if that's a logical error of my part, but like making things worse by keeping them the same is very much how I'm feeling about this right now. It's a dark day when we're busting out reifying. (laughs) Did you see it? Speaking of reifying, which makes me think of academic jargon. Did you see that story Mm -hmm. about the UCLA job posting for teaching and you had to have a PhD and there were um, no salary... There, there was some, there was some crazy Orwellian <laughs> jargon like you weren't getting paid to teach, and you had to have a PhD oh, anyway. Yeah, lovely. Reminds me why I'm not academic uh, anymore. <laughs> I think we better. Did we do one? Did we do two sponsor breaks already? I'm I so head up about audiobooks track. I can't remember I now. I think we did. So let's go back to most banned books of 2020. Speaking of the status quo being very bad and getting worse. Um, New York Times piece from Elizabeth Harris and Alexander Alter. Yes, the, our our two most cited times publishing book culture um, reporters here. I don't think there's no surprises here to me. Um, no. The most challenged books, Gender, Gender is Number One by Maya Kobabe. This is a new one to the list for me, but it all falls within the the sphere of what the vortex of 
assholeism around <laughs> challenging books that's going on right now yes. and the conservative right wing activist community waking up to this being a soft target that they can attack um, yeah in a, in a meaningful way i don't know i think the list to put in the show notes you can browse it here anything else to say about the list or particular titles uh rebecca no i think, think you're of? right it's just it's interesting that they are so obvious like one of these is literally called this book is gay and has a you know rainbow rainbow mm. flag as the cover like that is something that if you were a person inclined to do this kind of thing you could stroll through a bookstore and see that and get mad about it and decide that's the thing you're going to go after. The, honestly, the surprising thing on this list is that the absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian by Sherman Alexi is still on it. Like mm-hmm. people are first, like, I guess still reading that book in middle schools and putting it on doing something that draws enough attention to it, that it gets book banning efforts. But it also seems like the reasons that people objected to that are like quaint in comparison (laughs) to the conversation that happens around the attempts to ban books about Mm -hmm. LGBTQ identity. Like the absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian. Like, first of all, I wish that I thought that those were efforts to like, let us remove Sherman Alexi from the classroom Mm -hmm. because of these, this behavior that he has done that we are aware of. Um, But I don't think that's it. This has been on this list for a long time and it's because it makes reference to a teenage boy masturbating, which I have said this on this show before, but like, welcome to teenage boys. They already know these things. They didn't need Sherman Alexi to tell them, but it's like that. That's why people were all head up. 10 years ago seems very quaint compared to like, oh, now we're mad about the entire existence of people who just have different identities than you do. Yeah, there's only one. The the, the outlier here is The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, which is banned explicitly because of people say it's an anti-police book when mm-hmm. it's anti-police brutality or at the van. Yeah. A kid gets shot by cops for being black, essentially, and the ramifications of that. And that happens, so have fun with your logic of why this mm-hmm. is so bad. Um, everything else is challenged because of some relation to people wanting to have fun with their bodies, right? And, mm-hmm. it, you know, the the lowest level of outrage is about boys and girls, cis boys and girls having fun with each other, all the way up in the most, um, the most, I don't know, vociferous, mm-hmm. unhinged is if it's people that don't fit into his and hers or she's and him's and boys and girls' yeah. bodies talking about their bodies. And then, and then number one, genderqueer is not that, it's not just that we're non-binary or gay, it's we're both and also having fun with our bodies together. And so that, it makes sense to me, like on the Maslow's hierarchy of book banning challenges... <laughs> Non-binary folks having fun together with their bodies is the number one overall draft pick for these folks to go after. And if they're right, and if they are black queer people who oh, want yes. to express Great sexuality, Great that's point. Yep, it's, that's right. This is, I mean, it's truly just how intersectionality yep. works. Um, and you can you're just, you're applying that analysis here. I don't think that the folks who are doing this kind of banning realize that that's also what they are doing but it is that it is that math of like it's bad enough if it's about sexuality it's bad enough if it's about a form of gender expression or sexual expression that i don't personally agree with or understand but then you layer all of those things together and it becomes like 
not only do you want to be a gay person who's allowed to live, but like you also want to mm-hmm. have sex with other people and talk about it in a book. How dare. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess there's the, the baseline would be how often these things are appearing in classrooms or curricular reading lists, right? The more often something appears, the more chance it has to be, um, I don't know, inciting to the kinds of folks who are getting stupidly incited by this stuff. Go check out the list, you know, maybe buy some of these books for your library or your kids or people you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you could do worse than just to read these books as a kid, if, if, yeah. you, if you ask me <laughs> uh, at this point. Yeah, I think this is a nice syllabus for yeah. if you are teaching or parenting or just have kids in your life that you are trying to raise mm-hmm. to be inclusive and understanding of the diversity of human experience and sexual expression. This is a really nice syllabus that you can take with them. Yeah. You want to spend a minute in frontless foyer before we end? Do you have anything? I, I, I teased last week, and I, it feels incumbent on me to at least follow through on my threat <laughs> promise to follow up about the troika of books I used to yes. get at, to, to recover from the swimmers and Funny Farm. Um, would I would you like, like to hear, hear about that. I would like to hear about those. So I went on a spec fic jag on okay. three books that I had circled. Uh, I think as part of my. Um, uh, Quietus has kept the the seasonal preview draft work that we do goes into my keep an eye out uh, mm-hmm. list. And these all three were on there. I don't think I drafted any of them. Um, and well, I'll tell you why I didn't draft any of them, because I didn't know if they were good. And I didn't know that enough people would actually care. Um, how should I do this? I like them all. I like okay. them all differently. I guess in... Um, I don't know. I would. I was going to say, can I do an ascending order of of quality? I don't think that's it. I've come around more to the idea of not best, favorite, most enjoyable, but which books would you save from your reading mm. year? Like, if you could only have mm-hmm. read ten books this year, which ones you, would you like to have made sure that you're okay. um, that don't get severed? Right. If you if you had to <laughs> sever out all but ten, what goes on there? And for this, I think what I'll say is, the Cartographers by Peng Shepherd is the one that I would pick first not to get suffered it's okay. a it's a sophomore novel um it's not about sophomores it's her second book sophomore. <laughs> it sounds like an idiot book blogger. what if every sophomore novel was about sophomores? that would be amazing if there was like some weird rule that every second book had to be about sophomores as people who love campus novels I mean, <laughs> we would, would have a lot of them <laughs> uh and so the it's almost a spoiler to call it spec fic, and it's certainly a spoiler because it comes relatively late in the book about what is the thing that is t- that makes it spec fic. Oh. But it's about maps, and it's about people. Oh, it's about friends from college, and they do oh. something, and it comes back to haunt them. <laughs> Great. I really liked it. I thought. Well, it was I'm going to really read that good. now. <laughs> yeah, that was really good. Um, so I really enjoyed that. I guess next would be um, Secret Identity by Alex Segura, which mm. is a mystery set in the world of like 70s comic book publishing. Segura himself is a, he, I think he works as a marketer for a um, comics publisher, but also has done some comic writing of his own. This is a prose novel. It's not a graphic novel or, or comic or anything. But the main character's name is Carmen Valdez, and she is a secretary at a bottom-tier comic book publishing company, and she's um, gay and Hispanic, or Latina, and as you might guess, it's not a super awesome ladder climbing situation for her in 70s publishing. Um, not that it would even be great today, but especially tough there. So she's trying to find her way. She She's a huge comic fan, a talented comic writer, not getting a shot. And things transpire to give her a shot and then take it away, and she has to figure out what's going on. So it becomes mm-hmm. a mystery. 
Actually, you know what? It's not spec fic. I'm wrong. I thought it was going to be spec fic, but it's not. I thought it was going to be have a someone you know eats some radioactive goo and turns into something, but it's not that at all. <laughs> okay. It, it doesn't. It it does. It's not speculative fiction, but it's in the world of people who care about speculative fiction. I just realized I that was wrong. Okay. So I really like that. And the third one, which was the most popcorny of them all, was the Kaju Preservation Society by John Scalzi. Um, which I think the publisher's weekly blurb got me in one sentence by saying Jurassic World meets Parks and Rec. Well. Uh, or Jurassic Park meets. <laughs> I mean, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, and this is not a spoiler because the title is Kaiju Preservation Society. For those of you who know or don't know, Kaiju is like Godzilla-like, you know, beings. Mm. And this is, the, the conceit here is that there's this portal. There are these portals around the world that, you know, connects to a multiverse version of Earth. And in that version of Earth, there are kaiju. Kaiju are real. The reason we have got Godzilla stories is because there was a real Godzilla that punched through one of these holes. But there is this kaiju preservation society, which is this, I guess right now, it would make, after the Ukrainian-Russian, and really the last two years, the amount of international cooperation this book um, concedes is <laughs> the most unlikely thing about it. Not that there are multiverses that we can access. That, That's like, the, the whole most world, speculative aspect. That is the, the most speculative access that every country in the world knows that there's multiverses we can access, and they've kept it secret for 70 years. But um, putting that to the side, you know, the main character gets pulled into this world. They've got make some friendships. There's witty dialogue. It's it's pretty fun, pretty quick, very light. Um, I think actually my favorite part about this book maybe was Scalzi's acknowledgement sections where he talks about writing this. He was writing some other more serious book in the middle of COVID, and he was like, he had to tell his publisher, I can't do it. And oh. then he turned around and wrote this book in like 90 days or something. It just sort of flew out of him. Huh. Um, and that felt cathartic too. And it was yeah. the kind of thing I would have, I, I enjoyed reading it now. I would have even liked it more in the middle of last year. Yes. Um, but I liked all three of them, and they and they certainly provided some spiritual relief <laughs> from heaviness that I experienced. So those are three. I'd recommend them all if you like this kind of stuff. I enjoyed them all a great deal. I read them super fast. That's one thing. If you get into a speculative fiction book or a genre book, it is amazing. And then I came out of it and picked up a book I've been wanting to read. I bought a hardcover of. And I just am having a hard time getting into it is The D- Devil House by John Darnielle, which I've heard mm. really cool things about, and it has an interesting setup. But for some reason, I'm just banging my head against getting into it. So I think I'm probably going to set to the side, pick up Candy House tomorrow, and then I don't, maybe I'll come back to her or not. So that's that's um, uh, front list foyer for me. That's a good that's a good front list foyer. I'm definitely going to pick up The Cartographers. Yeah, I, I recommend. I think it's the most interesting. Yeah, since um, of the three of them. Since we talked last week, I finished Bittersweet by Susan Cain. And um, I really liked it. I think I was whelmed. Okay. Um but in, I was also whelmed by Quiet. Um I think I will probably take some of the ideas from Bittersweet like mm. more into my life than I took ideas from Quiet. I'm glad that Quiet exists as like a cultural document and and a conversation starter around not making everyone act like an extrovert all the time mm-hmm. um but bittersweet is really about like uh, the core of it is how do you identify like the thing that you long for or the way that she phrases it is what is the ache you can't get rid of hmm. and how do you then turn that into your creative offering yeah. uh whether it's you know that you had a particular experience in childhood and then that shapes the kind of work that you do in the future or literally it shapes the kind of creative you become a songwriter or an artist or something but 
it's kind of all modeled around the Leonard Cohen, you know, the cracks are where the light gets in kind of thing. Um, and I, I thought the way she talked about it was really interesting. It's a lot less social science-y um, than I was expecting it to be, but it gave me some things to chew on. Um, it felt closer to self-help, I think. But if you're a person who wants to think about what is the thing, what what is the ache I can't get rid of? And how can I turn that into meaningful expression in my life? There's there's useful stuff there. Um, so it's like not then, just write what you know, but like write what you know all too well or something like that. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Basically. Mm. Uh, and then I, I also am about halfway through, and honestly, I don't know if I'm going to finish, mm. um, Pay Up, The Future of Women and Work, and Why It's Different Than You Think by Reshma Sojani. I circled that one. Tell me tell me about your indifference, ambivalence about that. Uh, I think the title is kind of a misnomer. It's mostly about working women who are mothers, which is certainly a large uh. part of the workforce. Um, but that's not an experience that I relate to and the things that she highlights as like weaknesses of the general workforce and how it and how it treats parents are not things that we're particularly struggling with (laughs) in our company um i do think there's i think it's an interesting conversation starter if the events of the last two years were the first time that you really started feeling the truth that it's not possible for women to have it all and that the idea of having it all, like working and being a kick-ass parent and spouse and having a super clean house and being a great cook and all of those things, like that that is a trap in some way. If you're new to those ideas or just starting to like churn on that stuff, I think she probably highlights a lot of useful other resources and ways of talking about it. And she's pushing for you know, big cultural shifts around how work functions. And also the most interesting part to me is the legislative work that she's trying to do as an activist or lobbyist around getting getting legislation made that would make the workplace better for women, especially for women who are mothers. Um, I just didn't find any of it to be new. Um, I also spend a lot of time thinking and reading about this stuff. So I imagine a lot of it might be new for some of her audience. Um, the language in it is pretty gentle. I would buy it for somebody who's like opening themselves up to feminist ideas and to mm. thinking about how you might express feminist inclusion at work or even just beyond uh, beyond being better to women at work. How do we be better to all people who everyone has a complex life um, and many of many people have demands from other humans that depend on them, whether yeah. it's children or parents that live with them, that you're a caregiver for. Um, it, I think she could have had a broader conversation that I would have appreciated a little bit more. It's interesting that you mentioned that. I haven't read a business professional development book in a while that I was like, oh, there's really something there for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I've, I've wondered if the busman's MBA maybe has come to the end of being a target rich environment of, of ideas and experiences that I haven't, not not that I'm a master of any of it, right. That could still get better, but that there's like this whole new idea. like, Oh, I never thought about it that way before that that's vanishingly rare experience for me. I think that's a great way to phrase it. There's this like really interconnected web of literature around business ideas and then are also around self-help and then sort of, in between those around how those things connect to cultural concepts and work. And when you've read enough of them, you start to hear about the other ones that it is, I think we've both done a lot of that reading. And so it's hard to bump into something that is completely novel. 
Yeah. And then and then some of the truths are truth, which I think we've kind of come up with our own internal parlance is like trying to solve for that is like trying to solve for capitalism. And it's not always right. just capitalism, but it's like, you know, any big structure or institution, and it could be a cultural idea or feeling or bias or whatever, there's only so much within your ability to do that, even if you run, even if you run a big mm-hmm. company or yeah. a small company, like systemic things are systemic. That's a tautology that's stupid, but also super important to recognize. You can only do what you can do. And once it's about like, we need federal paid time off, that's our federal, federally subsidized a year long Canadian paternally. This is something that's come up specifically, right, Rebecca? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not yeah. telling anything out of school here, but like a small company like ours, that's a real, that's a real thing that kind of can't do, especially if a couple people did it at once or, or two or three where you would need the government to help you subsidize that. And maybe everyone pays a little bit more. That's not something we can solve on our own. And so when you get to that level, like it's hard to find durable, meaningful solutions at scales that you can affect. That's very hard because if we could do it, we would be doing it, right? So um, the other one, if anyone knows a book about this, we've looked for it, Rebecca and I have. That, but the other one is Time, vacation time off PTO what is the optimum no I'm serious it's how, there's yeah, no, yeah, liter- yeah, no we've looked at this you've well, looked at this I, what are, there's no studies about this Rebecca it makes me nuts well there's no studies about it in the US because most US companies provide like basically no PTO well and then the French have a bunch but they don't study I mean I'm not joking like yeah. there's no yeah like, they don't compare yeah. Estonia to Poland's thing and who's happier more productive whatever it's like clearly zero is too much and everything is too little or too much it's it's shocking how much that's a benefit people want. And we know it's a thing that's important to get right. But like, that's one I would look for. If there's like PTO by, uh, who would I want it by tomorrow? Who do I need PTO to be written by? I guess I would need like, do you want a Duckworth doing that? Mm. Like who who's out there doing the, oh, I can't remember her name. She wrote this really book, good book called The Good Job Strategy. Um, that was Zeta a nice- Tan. Yeah, Zeta Tan, who's like, I think I want an economist doing it. I don't yes, want I was a thinking, TED Talker. I don't want a professional like, TED Talker. PTO seems like too small of an idea to ask a Daniel Kahneman yeah. <laughs> effort. Of Dude, Adam Grant. I, what am yeah. I thinking about? Yeah. Or is he too, mm-hmm. I'm going to wear a head mic and, and talk to <laughs> Intel for a million. No, I'm serious. I mean, I just spent part of my morning watching him wear a head mic and talk about this stuff. No, I know. I know. But like, we kind of need Dan someone Pink. thirstier. Oh, Daniel Yeah. Pink. Because I think Grant isn't doing as much research these days because he's got to put on the head mic. Right. I do think I want an economist. I don't want a behavioral scientist. I want an economist to talk about. Well, because it's not about what individuals do. It's like, what's the right? Like how much getting people to take it is separate from how much they should be taking. Anyway, we're really down our own (laughs) personal. uh, Now we would like factory made business books just for us. That would sell, man. I'm telling you it would sell. I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure this would sell like how to get, especially right now, especially Mm -hmm. in this moment. Mm -hmm. It would Um, sell right now. It would sell. Anyway, that's bookriot.com slash listen for show notes and this and all backups of the Book Riot podcast. Shoot us an email, feedback about, you know, links we talked about, other things, moms, dads, grads, recommendation show requests, first email, first serve, and Book Riot, Patreon at patreon.com slash Book Riot Podcast. Link in the show notes. You can find it that way. We're going to get that off the ground uh, and see how much how much fun we can have there. Rebecca, thank you as always. Um, I'm going to now go and try to turn my ache of audiobook pricing into a work of creative genius. It seems like a tough ask, but, you know. Well, 
It is a cold and broken hallelujah. 